The Word of God comes to us this morning from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5, uh, verses 14 through 16. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me there. Uh, You could also follow along with the words on the screen as uh, we hear from Jesus this morning in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 14 through 16. Hear now the word of the Lord. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden, neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand, and it gives light to the entire house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. This is God's word offered to us in its reading and in its hearing, so we give thanks to Lord God Almighty. Would you bow with me for a word of prayer? Gracious God, we do give you thanks for your word, for the wisdom that's contained therein and what it means for us to gather together around your word and to learn from it, to grow in it. Lord, convict us, compel us, uh, lead us to know what it means to follow you and to follow your word this day. Lord, open our eyes that we would see, our ears that we would hear, open our minds that we would come to know and understand your word and indeed your ultimate will, open our hearts that we would feel its power. And by your grace, I ask, O oh God, that you would open our hands, that we would offer grace to the world. We pray this in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen. I love how this scripture opens up and is so entirely direct. You see, Jesus is with his disciples. They've, they were in the hustle and bustle of ministry and all that was going on in uh, their life of work together. They removed themselves to a high place, seated on a mount, looking down over the Sea of Galilee, this beautiful space, also looking down on the communities that they've been serving, including all of the people that God had called them to be in ministry to and with. And, and here in this space, Jesus looks at them directly and says, you are the light of the world. Do you hear how directly that confronts you, confronts me? He looks at us. If we choose to follow Jesus Christ, if we are a disciple of Jesus, then he looks directly at us and says, you are the light of the world. You, even you, even when you don't feel like it, you are. You know what I'm saying? Like, like you don't get a choice in this. If you follow Jesus, you are the light of the world. Even in those moments where you want to remove yourself from situations where you, you, you feel as though maybe you're experiencing a, a, a need for distance or separation. Maybe you're going through a little bit of darkness or a funk and you think to yourself, not me, someone else right now. Someone else, not me. You've been there, I've been there, you know what I'm talking about. If, if I could just let someone else take it today, today, uh, Jesus Find someone else today, and yet Jesus looks at you and looks at me and says, no, you, this is what you got to do. You are the light of the world. You are. There's no, there's no choice. You are. Once you follow Jesus, you are no longer uh, optional light. Light on, light off. It's not clapping, clap on, clap off. It's not pushing the button. There's no dimmer switch. There's no presets. It's just you are. It defines your character. I mean, we're, we're in a series, Harvest, Fruits of the Spirit, Love, Joy, Peace, Patience, Kindness, Goodness, Faithfulness, Gentleness, and Self-Control. When we receive the Spirit of God in us, 
all of these things reside there and we are that. We embody that. We are convicted to be that each and every moment of each and every day. You are the light of the world. And, and then Jesus moves on and, and articulates what this looks like, this, this detail, this definition. He says, and so here's, here's this light. You know, you don't put it on, under a bowl. You do put it on a lampstand. You want everybody to be able to see because of it. But, but then here's the characteristic of light. The characteristic of light is goodness. Jesus concludes this statement by saying, so that your good deeds... The, the, the good things that you do, that you offer the world, the way you pour yourself out to others, the way that, that you see a need and you enter into that space. That's what it means to be light. That's what it means to follow Jesus. That, that's what it means to exhibit that fruit of the Spirit that is goodness. And then Jesus is very quick and very clear to give the why as well. Jesus doesn't want us to get confused in that or, or, or to, to stray away from it. You know, because sometimes uh, whenever we're doing good, uh, we, we shy into to the, to, to the, the, the evil one's temptation. And we kind of bend towards, oh, I'm doing good. Look at me, right? Like poke your chest out right here, right? No, 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 no. Uh, you do these good deeds so that others would see them. And what does it say there? What does it say? So that others would see them and they will give glory to God, your Father, our Father in heaven. That's the purpose. That's the why. That's the how that this comes about. When we are light, when we are disciples, we do good deeds because we are, it's, it's woven into the fabric of who we are. And when we do good deeds, others glorify God. And you know what this looks like in the reverse, right? Because you've seen someone do something good, something good for you or something good for someone else, and you've looked upon their life or upon their example, and then whenever you've, whenever you've witnessed that, uh, you've said, praise God. Wow. It's been inspiring. It's been convicting. It's, been, it's compelled you to, to enter into that space as well. And you say, praise God. And I think that's part of the fabric of what it means to, to be a disciple doing good. Because, because uh, when, whenever we're doing it out of that Christian formation, uh, we, we kind of remove ourselves from it. And someone wants to give you praise. No, no, no. Glory to God. Right? Uh, I want to do this anonymously. I want to do it meekly. I want to do it humbly. And so I enter into it and I point to God, the one for whom this was made possible. The, the reason, the motivation behind my action, to God be the glory. I've witnessed this in my life and, and uh, over and over again in, in, in small instances, but what's, what I found profound recently is, is how I've been able to witness goodness in, in an arc as a thread woven through a, a meta story that, that extends over the course of time and, and, and inspires me in new and fresh ways. And this summer has been... Uh, a real example of that. And the story actually begins all the way back in uh, the early 90s. Um, that would be 1990s kids. Uh, so, so my family lived in Meyerland uh, down in, in Houston, and we moved from Ireland to Wharton right as I was kind of entering into fifth, sixth grade. And 
uh, and it was back to, back to school shopping time. My, my dad was a pastor. My mom was a stay-at-home mom at that point in time, and, uh, and resources were limited for us, and we were uh, moving to Wharton. And so uh, back to school shopping was always this thing. I have three sisters. There's four of us, and so you're getting the image. Like, uh, you got to let everything stretch a little bit further, right? Uh, son of a pastor and a stay-at-home mom. And so uh, we went to what I now affectionately call the bargain barn. I don't know if that's really what you call it, but, but you know what I'm talking about. It's, it's on the side of country highways, and it typically says like Lee, Dockers, and then it has like three other brands that you've never heard of in, in, in lights, and it's like a, it literally is a barn or a, or a really cheap warehouse on the side of the road. And so that's where we went to go back to school shop because we needed a bargain. That's why you go to the bargain barn. Right. Okay. So, uh, so we went there, and 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 I saw like, wow, you know, look at all this stuff we could get. We could get like like entire outfits for like six bucks. Uh, um, and 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 I didn't realize what was coming, you know. So uh, I'm I'm thinking I got a deal. My dad's thinking, yeah, Jason's excited. This is great. You know, we got deal. And uh, and I went to school in Wharton, Texas, and uh, and I was. So I would go come home and my mom and dad wouldn't know what was really up with me. Uh, and they would probe, how was your day? Who are you hanging out with? What are you doing on the playground? Who you, uh, how is it? And I was just kind of down and in a fog. And uh, I revealed to my parents that, that I had been kind of ostracized and exiled and outcast in the social circles uh, in, in Wharton because uh, of the clothes that I was wearing. You know, and it was it was in the day and age where you had the hill figure, and you had your uh, you had your jerbos with the little thing right across the the zipper. What was that, right? Uh, and the flat po- the fe- you know the flat pocket lines, and so like they that was like the culture of Wharton. It was to 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 wear that, and uh, if you weren't wearing that, then they knew your social standing. And so I was like pushed to to the outside, and you know, eating lunch by yourself, and all that kind of mess. And so my dad, like, they, they went and got a, uh, a credit card. They tried not to live on a credit card. They went and got a credit card. They took out debt so that I could, like, change my clothes so that I could then fit in in the social circles of Wharton. Um, and just a few years later, my dad remembered that. Like, that, that, that like, ripped him apart that, that he had done this harm unintentionally to me, uh, and, and he was... Uh, motivated to not do that again and to find ways around that. And so uh, he, uh, it, we moved from Wharton to, to Missouri City, and I went to Elkins High School in Missouri City, the Quail Valley Country Club area, and a beautiful area, not, not too dissimilar from the kind of North Houston suburbs that we live in. And, uh, and the culture in that community, you know, this is where uh, Bruce Matthews' kids went to school and Warren Moon's kids went to school. And so, like, an, it was normal to have brand-new BMWs and Lexuses and, and uh, Mercedes in the parking lot for 16-year-old kids. Why do you do that? That's so weird. Uh, and so, so, that, so that was the, the kind of standard of car that was, was there in the parking lot. And so my dad was really concerned, like, Jason just turned 15. Whenever Jason gets his car, what's it going to be? How is he going to work through providing me something that was going to allow me to be in good standing socially and yet at the same time be able to afford it? And so uh, 
he wanted to do right by me, wanted to do good by me, and, and uh, he thought and thought and thought and landed on, I'm going to do something totally unique, like out of the box. Like, why am I constrained by how I'm going to take out enough debt to give my 16-year-old a Mercedes uh, just because that's what all of his friends are going to drive? And so, so he, he, he committed to himself, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do something different. And so he put out feelers uh, through his relationships, and he found something totally unique and something totally different, and his hope was that that was going to create uh, a cool factor for me that would resonate separate and distinctively different uh, from the Mercedes crowd, uh, and that, that I would still be kind of honored and, and engaged in that world. And so, uh, so he found a farm truck, a 1966 Chevy C10 pickup truck. And, uh, and we drove out to Bowling, Texas, and we picked it up, and we drove it back, and I immediately fell in love. Oh, it's so beautiful. <laughs> the 66 step side short bed, uh, and, and it has the oak wood bed, and, and it, has, it has the beautiful, the beautiful uh, bumper, but the, 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 the lights are like big, beautiful eyes that are just blinking at you, making you feel happy. And, uh, and, and it has the bench seat, and it has the three on the tree. Uh, it was an inline, inline six and manual transmission. And so with the three on the tree, like people had no clue how to drive it. I could leave it unlocked, and no one would ever steal it because no one knew what the heck was going on <laughs> with this truck. And, uh, but it needed some, some love and some TLC, you know. It was a farm truck, and uh, the paint was chipping, and, and it had some rust spots. And, and so, uh, so we picked it up and, and brought it home, and, and I was just in love. And my friends thought it was the coolest thing ever. And so totally rebuilt the truck from the bottom up, uh, uh, put a new floorboard in it, new carpet. Uh, I, of course, I kept the bench seat. I was a 16-year-old boy, so kept the bench seat and uh, reupholstered it and uh, and, but, but one of the, the early things that was jacked up about it was the bed was rotted out. Because in the, in the 60s, the bed was not steel. The bed was wood. And it had these, these metal runners that tied the whole thing together. And so a uh, guy at church uh, walked by my truck and saw that the bed was literally rotted out, that you could see down to the rear axle and, uh, and so he approached my dad and said, hey, I really love woodworking. It's, not, it's one of my passions. And my dad said, of course you do. Jim, and Jim Stevenson's his name. He lived just down the street from, his, from us. And my dad has seen his wood shop and he did immaculate work. He said, I want to I do this with Jason and kind of help you and Jason put this together. And so he mapped it all out and schemed it all out and got it all prepped. And a couple of Saturdays in a row, we took it over to his house just down the street. And uh, this man in his late 60s, early 70s worked with my dad and I as we uh, rebuilt the bed, and, and we made it look so fine. It was, you know, oak wood, uh, and we stained it and had stainless steel runners, so when you looked in it, the whole thing just popped, and it just was like, ah. So uh, rebuilt the carburetor, rebuilt the engine, uh, uh, new radiator, new hoses. I learned how to do all this with my dad and experienced so much joy. Um, and everybody loved the truck. Drove it up to Shreveport, went to college uh, in uh, Centenary College, and, uh, you know, friends, friends tell me now that uh, they knew where I was based on where my truck was because, it like, everybody could see, you know, metallic indigo blue with the sparkles in the paint, oh, and everybody would just uh, knew exactly where I was uh, depending on where my truck was, but Lauren and I went on our first date in the truck. Uh, 
we'd take the truck out to the Shreveport Observatory and uh, watch the stars together, fell in love in the truck, and uh, moved from Shreveport to seminary at, uh, in Atlanta, Georgia. And in 2003, uh, Lauren and I had a, had a surprise, fall 2003, I'm halfway through seminary, 23 years old. Uh, surprise, you're pregnant. Uh, we, we got pregnant in, and, uh, in, in, in the fall uh, of 2003, 18 more months of, of seminary left. And uh, I began, began immediately kind of adding things up, right? Two plus two equals four. And uh, lap belts and no airbags equals this truck doesn't work for babies, right? Uh, and, and so with, with great sadness in my heart, I, I went to Lauren and said, Lauren, I, I've been figuring this out. Um, we're going to have to sell the truck. And <laughs> she said, I was waiting for you to figure it out because you're right, we do. Uh, and, and, and we did. And so I put a for sale sign in the truck. Um, and uh, drove it all around, you know, school, home, and to church. Worked at Northside Methodist Church in Atlanta at the time, north, northwest side of Houston and Buck, uh, in Atlanta and Buckhead. And um, had a call from one of the lay leaders of the church. And uh, he said, hey, uh, I saw a sign of your truck. Can, uh, can I meet you up there at the church? I said, sure, absolutely. I'm glad to do it. And so uh, I arrived there. Uh, at the truck, and he, he looks me dead in the eye, man to man, right? What in the world are you doing? Well, what do you mean, sir? What are you doing? You can't sell your truck. Uh, I have to. Why? He turns, why in the world would you sell your truck? I mean, this is, this is your baby, your dad, your dad, and you built it together, and, you know, it was your first vehicle. You're going to, Jason, you're going to regret it. Don't do it. I said, I got to. I'm going to be a family man. My wife and I are pregnant. Uh, so excited to have kids. And this just doesn't work. And almost resigned or resignated to what I had just said to him, he said, okay, I'll buy your truck from you. How much do you want? And I told him, and his eyes got big. <laughs> and, and he said, how about this much? And he kind of you know, dropped the offer, and I said, no, can't do it. And then I started telling him about you know, the love of my life, not lowering my truck. And uh, <laughs> I started start mapping out for him all that I had done to it and the wheels put on it and the rims and the bed and the paint job and, and uh, said, got to have it. And he said, I'll, I'll, I'll do it. I'll buy your truck from you, Jason. And, uh, and he did. Uh, fast forward 15 years later. Uh, Addie turns 15, and uh, it's this summer, 
and uh, birthday's on the 24th, and we kind of have this like aha moment, right? Like we go and we do the big wait in line thing, and we get her permit, and, and you know, she drives home, and <laughs> she's driving around with us, and we start talking about what do you want for, for your car, you know, for your first car, and, and I'm, I'm sitting here thinking, oh my gosh, like I know what some of these kids drive, yeah, we have, we have a, a friend, he has a brand new Corvette, you know, um, uh, this could be bad, what do you want? And so I'm a little bit relieved because she's kind of experienced a, a little bit of the other side of the world of Tomball, and she, she turns to me and says, I want a truck. I'm like, truck? My, you know, 15-year-old varsity cheerleader daughter is like, I want a truck. And not only that, does she, she wants a truck. She said, I, I want an old truck. And then she expands and expounds and says, or it could be like an FJ or a Blazer or a Bronco, but it, nothing newer than 85. It has to be older than 85. I want something old. And so we like start browsing through pictures and she shows me some of her friend's rides that are all done. And, it's, and, and uh, we're having all, all sorts of fun with it together. And at one point in the conversation, she turns to me and says, what about your truck? And I think back with joy in my heart and I think to myself, you know, uh, yeah, baby girl, that's not my truck anymore. Um, you know, it, it, it's now Mr. Jordan's truck, and uh, he really did us, uh, he blessed us, your mom and I, whenever he bought it from us, and it's his truck now. About a month later, um, my best friend from seminary, Derek Porter, uh, who's now a pastor uh, just a little further uh, northwest in Atlanta, still uh, calls me out of the blue, hadn't talked to Derek in a while, see his number kind of pop up on my phone, get all excited, you know, looking forward to connecting with a seminary friend. And uh, he calls, and, and when I answer, what's up, man? Uh, hey, I got some devastating news and some kind of unbelievable news. Then he shares with me, he says, the patriarch of our church, the one that held everything together, the one that kind of the church leaned on as the rock of the church, uh, he kind of carried through them through some turmoil before I arrived, and, and after I arrived, he, he, he's seen it through to this day. Uh, he passed away, 62 years old, in his front yard mowing the lawn. And he said, I, I, was, uh, I was with his wife, Donna, just uh, earlier today. And, and Donna was telling me that she and Cliff... Had a, had a vision, had a dream together about uh, Cliff's truck. That whenever the time was right, Donna and Cliff wanted to find the young man that sold his truck to Cliff and give it back to him. And Derek's telling me this over the phone. And the name has resonated with me, obviously. And Derek says, I told Donna, I said, Donna, this is going to seem unbelievable to you, but the young man that sold you that truck was my best friend in seminary. His name is Jason Byrne. She said, I remember Jason. That's, that's right. And, uh, and he says, if you do me the honor, I'd love to call him and let him know that that's your desire to give him his truck back. 
So he did, and I'm on the phone, and I'm just, I'm crying. I'm crying uh, in, uh, on the phone with him. I'm like, you're kidding me, dude. Oh, my gosh, what are you talking about, right? And I'm totally losing my mind, unbelievable. And he says, I couldn't make this up, Jason. I could not make this up. This is real. Donna wants to give you the truck. And so, uh, so I tell Addie the story, and Addie's like, it's mine, right? <laughs> and I'm like, well, baby girl, you know, we'll teach you how to drive it, you could, and you could take it to, to high school, and uh, then, uh, but, but after, when you head to college, it's, it's staying home with me. It's not... <laughs> I looked that night online just to reacquaint myself with Cliff and his life and his witness. And uh, his obituary told me that he passed away on Addie's birthday. And uh, so I, I then uh, start telling a few people this story, this unbelievable story. No one can believe it. Uh, my dad and I crying on the phone together. Lauren just, what? And uh, um, tell it to a friend of mine, and uh, and he he he's a a, a real uh, down to business, make things happen kind of guy. And he said, he said, well, how are you going to get back? How are you going to get it back? You know, she wants to give it to you. How are you going to get it back? And I was like. Well, so I have this, like, nostalgic vision, right? I'm going to drive it back from Atlanta. I'm, like, going to take this 66 Chevy truck, this 53-year-old vehicle, and I'm going to, like, cut through all the back roads of Alabama and kind of bushwhack my way through Mississippi, and I'm going to arrive through Louisiana and, and come home in my truck. And, and he's like, you're insane. <laughs> what in the world are you thinking? You know, you can take a 53-year-old truck that you have no clue what condition it's in and, and drive it all the way back. And he said, no, 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 no. You're going to take my truck, beautiful F-350. You're going to take my truck, and you're going to, and uh, I have a friend that has an auto trailer, and you're going to take my trailer, and you're going to, and you're going to, you're going to, you're going to tow it back. You're going to do it right. You're going to tow it back. And he makes all the arrangements, even through some some kind of tumultuous situations that uh, that challenge the circumstance. Through it all, he finds a way so that I can in safe and beautiful condition, drive the truck and the trailer back. And he said that there's one thing that I think you should really be considering. He says, uh, I think you should make this trip with your daddy. And so a couple months ago, my dad and I drove to Atlanta with this truck and trailer and reconnected with Derek and went over to Miss Donna's house And it was this beautiful kind of pointed experience to be with Donna because Donna, it wasn't just Donna. Donna had all the pastoral leaders of the church there because she and Cliff had been such influential folks there in the church. And she also had some of her and Cliff's best friends there as well meeting with us. And I asked them to share stories of Cliff, stories of Cliff in the truck. And, and come to find out, Cliff, uh, everybody knew Cliff for his truck. But he only drove it twice a week. He drove it on Sunday mornings to church. And he drove it on Wednesday nights for Wednesday night supper. Where he, the patriarch of the church, the one that held it all together, cooked in the kitchen and washed dishes at Wednesday night supper. 
And everybody in the church uh, loved the truck. They'd take pictures with the truck whenever it was pumpkin time. They'd sell pumpkins, you know, for their, for their fall festivals. And he'd have the truck out there and all the, all the families would take pictures in front of the truck. They'd get it set up like a little scene. And at some point, I just turned to Don and said, why? What do you think led Cliff to want to give me the truck back? He said, well, Cliff was all about family. And uh, you know, Donna has MS. She's been wheelchair-bound for most of their married life, and they never had kids. And she said, we never had kids, but he and his dad loved to tinker with stuff and build stuff and take things apart and put them back together. And his dad passed away a couple of weeks before you put the for sale sign in that truck. And his dad didn't have much. He was a humble man, but the little bit he had he left to Cliff in a small inheritance. And Cliff put that entire inheritance into buying that truck. And from the very beginning, it was for you. The truck was never for him. He loved it. Don't get me wrong. He drove it with such joy and such pride. But whenever he bought it, he bought it for you so that you could experience this sort of unmerited goodness. It was all about family for Cliff. So I drove it back, and uh, the story is still kind of overwhelming to me, right? Like, uh, how in the world does this happen? This is like, a, you know... Uh, you have stories about dogs that do this sort of thing, but not trucks. Uh, and uh, so I think about my dad and about Jim Stevenson and about Derek and Donna and Cliff. And they all did it because of the goodness that welled up within them because of their love for Jesus Christ. And I give God glory and honor for their goodness. Because they don't want any part of the praise. I give God glory and honor for my friend that stepped in the gap and made a way for me to do this. It was safe and smart. And I think to myself, how are you going to be good in the world? What is it like when you see a need, when you see an opportunity, when you see something before you that needs attending to? What do you do? I know what you do because I've been with you for a while. You step in the gap. You step forward because that's what Jesus taught you to do. Jesus has led you in the way that leads to life. He's told you what it means to be the light of the world. And he said, this light that shines in me shines now in you. And so you're going to go out in the world and you're going to do good works on my behalf. I've seen you. I know that's your story. Make it so more and more. Anytime you see a need, step in that gap. How can you be good today? How can you be good tomorrow? 
and let your good works bring glory to God in heaven. May it be so in you more and more each and every day so that stories are told about the goodness of God shown through you and God would receive the glory. May it be so. Would you pray with me? Gracious God, you are good. Your mercy endures forever. Your steadfast love transforms our lives. And so we ask, God, that you would meet with us now in this space and this time and remind us of the ways in which you've called us to step forward, to move into the gap, and to offer love and grace to those around us. Lord, we thank you for your goodness, and we ask, God, that you would open our eyes to the ways in which you're calling us forward each and every day. Lord, meet with us now in this space and this time as we continue in worship. And we enter into this time of offering. We ask, God, that you would receive this portion of what you've blessed us with. Lord, we offer it. We offer it to the kingdom-building work of your church so that more and more we know the name of your son, Jesus Christ, his grace and his love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.